Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, we saw a strong upward move by equity markets, which shrugged off yet more increases in bond yields to complete a much better first half of the year than many market participants and pundits had expected at the start of 2023. Such contrarian behaviour, as always, a useful reminder how difficult, some would say foolish, it is to try and macro-manage an investment portfolio. In today's podcast, I will be discussing the market performance and the outlook from here with two guests, Peter Hewitt, manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolio, a fund of investment trusts, and reflecting on the poor relative performance of the UK equity market over the last few years with James Henderson, the long-serving manager of the Lowland Investment Trust and indeed a veteran UK equity manager. The S&P 500 was up 2.5% this week and is 16% up so far this year, albeit the performance being narrowly based around the performance of a handful of very large cap stocks. A significant factor in holding off the further declines that many had expected in the market has been the resilience of the US economy, where unemployment remains at a 40-year low, despite all those rate increases by the Federal Reserve. House prices have been rising, not the same as over here in the UK, and this week's latest reading of consumer confidence showed it to be at the highest level since the start of last year. In other words, before the Ukraine war, soaring inflation and higher interest rates started to dominate the headlines. Even allowing for the fact that unemployment and indeed inflation are lagging indicators, they tell us what has happened, not what is going to happen in the future, All of this is obviously difficult to square with the idea that the widely expected recession is about to arrive, in the United States at least. And this is despite the fact that the yield curve, the ratio between short and longer term bond yields, remains inverted, with two-year US Treasuries trading at around a 4.9% yield, and 10- and 30-year Treasuries, in other words longer maturities, a full 1% lower. An inverted yield curve historically has been a necessary, though not a sufficient, condition to expect an impending recession. Nonetheless, it's not hard to find reasons for concern. Other leading indicators are still flashing warning signs. For example, a risk sentiment indicator, a composite of 10 individual measures catalogued by Oxford Economics, has spiked to its highest level since the second half of 2021, since before the peak in the US market. Pictures not so clear-cut in other markets. The FTSE All Share, which we'll be discussing later, was up a tad over 1% this week, but is more or less flat over the year, although you can add a dividend yield of around 4.4% to that, meaning it has at least produced a positive total return. The FTSE 250, for what seems like the first time in a long time, outperformed the All Share this week, rising just under 2%. The Japanese, Chinese and indeed most European equity markets also moved higher, with the French market uh, amongst the strongest of all, despite riots in the streets. Maybe that has something to do with the head-scratching turn of events in Russia, where the Wagner Group's reported coup attempt ended as abruptly as it started. No one knows quite what to make of that so far. What does it foretell for the future of the Ukraine war and, indeed, Mr Putin himself? We don't know. In the gilts market, yields rose across almost the entire curve, with nominal yields now in a range from 39 to 5.55%. 
The dollar was up again against the pound, reversing some of its uh, earlier decline. It was also up against the yen and the euro, and although the oil price was flat, other commodities were generally weaker. And gold has retreated to just above the $1,900 an ounce mark, down 5% or so from its recent peak. Despite those equity market gains, the Investment Trust Index was up just a quarter of 1% this week and is 4.6% down for this year, thanks obviously to derating amongst many of its constituents. It's not been helped by the fact that some of its largest constituents by market cap, in other words, the largest infrastructure, renewable and commercial property trusts, have been among the worst affected by rising bond yields. A number of those trusts were, however, notably among the star performers this week, after more than one broker put out notes arguing that the sell-off in these interest-sensitive stocks had been overdone. Uh, The move higher in these sectors was led by 3i Infrastructure, BBGI, the uh, Core Infrastructure Trust, and Hickel, while Regional REIT, Aberdeen Property Income, and PRS REIT also did notably well in the commercial property sector. There were some painful contrasts, though, within the alternatives, highlighting specific portfolio issues, with Cordian Digital, for example, ticker CORD, up 6% on the week, while Digital Infrastructure 9, ticker DGI 9, was down a short 1%. The average sector discount ended the week at 17%, a very mild improvement on the previous week, but still close to its lowest level this year. Turning to company news, the board of Midwind International, ticker MWY, surprised some market participants by announcing that following the impending retirement of managers Simon Edelston and Alex Illingworth later this year, that was announced a few weeks ago, they are taking the management contract away from Artemis and awarding it instead to Lazard Asset Management's Global Quality Growth Team. This despite the fact that Artemis had earlier said they had hired a replacement and were clearly hoping to keep the mandate. What this episode seems to demonstrate is that an internal solution proposed by a management group does not automatically guarantee support from an independent board. You may recall that the board of Midwind chose Simon Edelson as its manager back in 2014, the trust having previously been managed by Bailey Gifford. As Simon Edelson has built a strong following with retail investors in particular, it will be interesting to see if that following can be maintained with the new manager and approach. Lazard is not currently a manager of any investment companies, although in the past it did manage the World Trust Fund, a fund of funds investment company, but that was wound up in 2019. And its client base is mainly institutional. I'm not sure we've heard the whole story about how this situation has developed. In a week when we've seen further evidence of the collapse of OD Asset Management, with several of its funds being suspended because of hefty redemptions and others negotiating a future with other fund management companies, after the publication of allegations about the behaviour of its founder, Crispin Odie, he has though denied those allegations, an obvious comment to make is that it once again highlights the great advantage that investment trusts do enjoy in the shape of those independent boards. It's difficult to see how a situation like the Odi debacle could have happened if his funds had been listed public companies with a genuinely independent board. Well, you would certainly hope so anyway. Water companies were in the headlines this week with fears that Thames Water, the largest of them all, could be running into serious financial difficulties because of its huge debts, and it may need to be renationalised, or at least temporarily, by the government. We're still waiting to hear what the outcome of current discussions between government and the company and the regulator will be. But one obvious question has been, would this cause problems for the infrastructure trusts that have exposure to the water industry? Well, they said this week, not. International Public Partnerships, ticker INPP, whose second largest investment is a significant shareholding in the Tideway, 
the so-called London Super Sewer, a huge project underway to reduce the amount of untreated sewage floating into the Thames in London and due to complete in 2025. IMPP said this week that even though Thames Water collects revenues from its customers to pay for the project and then passes them on to the Tideway, Tideway operates as a separate company and would expect to be ring-fenced from the fallout from any rescue should that be the outcome. The most likely step, the company said, is that Thames Water will be moved into a special administration regime, meaning the business would be transferred as a going concern and carry on as now. Meanwhile, Hickel, another of those core infrastructure trusts whose shares are up this week, has a minority stake in one of the other water companies, Affinity Water, but that appears to be in a better financial position. Its bonds, for example, are trading close to par and yielding around 6%, whereas those of Thames Water, similar 2026 bonds, are trading at a huge discount of around 45%, and the current yield there is 28% the kind of figure that should send you scuttling for cover. Meanwhile, another debt investment trust, this time Blackstone Loan Financing, ticker BGLF, announced that uh, following consultation with its advisors, the board proposes to put forward proposals for a managed wind-down. Reasons for this decision include the prevailing discount to NAV, which has been around 25%, and the fact that the market cap and the liquidity of this trust are problematic. The board sees limited reinvestment opportunities and an inability to grow through share issuance. So this looks like this is another of the debt trusts, uh, many of which came to market a decade or so ago, could be on the way out. Ironically, performance year to date has been rather good with the shareholder total return of around 9% compared with 1.5% for the FTSE All Share and 4% for the peer group trusted invest in structured finance. However, as with other debt companies that are going out of business, investors are warned that it could be a slow death with a liquidation period could be measured in years rather than months, given the liquid nature of the underlying portfolio. Another trust facing issues, uh, this time outside its control, is Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure, ticker RNEW, which has had the misfortune to have one of its projects, the aptly named Whirlwind Energy Farm in Floydada, Texas, shut down after a tornado damaged five of its transmission poles and severely damaged the neighbouring American Electric Power substation to which a whirlwind sends its output. That substation is going to have to be rebuilt, so no export of power in the medium term. As at 31st of March, Whirlwind was the company's largest asset, accounting for 38% of its net asset value. Ecovin said it's declared a force majeure event with Whirlwind's off-taker, Austin Energy, and is working closely to plan an expected timetable which can remedy this uh, outage. Meanwhile, the dividend has been halved from 1.4 to 0.7 cents as a temporary precautionary measure. The shares are currently trading on a 31% discount to NAV, notably larger than the average discount for other listed renewable funds. This trust only raised half its $250 million target fundraise at IPO back in December 2020 and has struggled to gain traction since then. And so this misfortune will obviously raise questions about its viability over the longer term, even if the problems are rectified quickly. Chrysalis, meanwhile, the Growth Capital Trust, which has been on a real roller coaster ride, reported in its annual results for the year to March 2023 that its NAV per share had fallen by 12%. The shares, meanwhile, have moved out to a discount that's reached in the regions of 50% amongst the largest of all investment trusts. 
The company said that it is looking to shift its focus to achieve a better balance between profitability and growth. It says that 84% of its investments are either profitable or funded through to what they expect to be profitability. And that is an increase from 67% in the earlier period. More significantly, perhaps, the manager said it will be consulting with shareholders about the merits of doing a buyback policy when it receives realisation proceeds. In other words, when some of its investments generate cash, they will be deciding whether or not that should be paid back to shareholders immediately or reinvested, as they have been so far. The board also said it intends to engage with a wide range of shareholders ahead of its upcoming continuation vote in 2024 and will be putting forward proposals by the fourth quarter this year. A circular will be sent to shareholders in that quarter detailing the proposals for the ongoing management of the company. And it said shareholders will have the opportunity to vote on whether the fund should continue with its existing strategy of investing those proceeds from realisations or whether it should be adopting a managed exit programme in which those proceeds of its investments to date are returned to shareholders. Interesting to see how that one goes, given the furore that there was last year about the impact of its uh, notorious performance fee arrangements, which uh, awarded huge performance fee to the managers of the trust only a short while before the shares collapsed as the impact of higher bond yields came home to roost on valuations. Another possibly ominous sign was the announcement by Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, ticker SERE. It reported an NAV total return of minus 4.7% for the latest six-month period to the 31st of March, but said it was rebasing its dividend. Rebasing is a cut in plain parlance to a level 20% below its former level, starting with its next interim dividend for the 2023 year. The purpose of the move is to ensure that the dividend is covered. The performance has actually been better than many other UK property companies due to its holdings of largely inflation-linked leases across Europe. However, the cut to the dividend is a disappointing outcome, and obviously the hope is that this is not going to be the prelude to another round of dividend cuts across the commercial property sector. If you recall, all but one of them were forced to cut their dividends in the wake of the pandemic three years ago. And while at the moment the noise coming out of the managers and boards of the commercial property trust is that that's not an issue, this perhaps potentially could be an indicator that uh, not every trust will be able to sustain its dividend unless there is a turn in sentiment in the sector and there is not a recession that actually causes problems and declines in net asset values beyond those we've seen already, uh, which have been largely driven by the change in the interest rate environment. Finally, on the news front, quickly note that RTW Venture Fund, or ticker RTW, the Healthcare and Biotech Investment Trust, is changing its name to RTW Biotech Opportunities. While Life Science REIT, ticker LABS, L-A-B-S, one of the most recent newcomers to the investment trust sector, has decided to take a hit to its capital value in order to refinance its $150 million debt facility. Uh, This is something which uh, a number of other property trusts have been looking at doing, deciding that the cost of their debt is too high and being willing to take a hit to their NAV by refinancing at a different rate or on a different maturity. Those who have taken action of this kind include Warehouse REIT, Supermarket Income REIT and LXI, who have all taken out caps or swaps in an effort to lock in more attractive interest rates. So this week we have a mixed bag of annual results from a number of different sectors. The largest trust reporting was SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust, ticker SEIT, a market cap 812 million. 
which reported an NAV total return of minus 0.9 for the year to the end of March 2023. This is mainly the result of increasing its discount rate to 7.7% on an unlevered basis and 8.5% after taking account of leverage. Its 6P dividend was, however, covered 1.2 times over the year, and the trust announced a buyback program back in April in an attempt to uh, limit the derating, which has driven its discount out to around 25%. This trust also has a continuation vote coming up in September, and it will be interesting to see how that one goes. Since IPO has paid out some 24P in dividends and reported an NEV total return of 29.6%, but the share price total return is now showing as negative over the period since launch because of the sector-wide derating. Nine months ago, it was trading at a premium. Now it stands at this 25% or so discount. So what will shareholders make of that? The NAV performance has been perfectly acceptable, but is the derating going to deter some investors from supporting a continuation? I think that'll be a good test case of where investor sentiment is. Amongst other reporting annual results, we had Aberdeen New India, ticker ANII, which reported an NAV per share decline, an adjusted NAV per share, adjusted for the impact of Indian capital gains tax, adjusted NAV per share of minus 8%, slightly worse than the benchmark MSCI India. The trust did say in its announcement that it's intending to invest up to 10% in unquoted companies, provided they meet its core investment criteria. Hansa Investment Company, a multi-asset trust ultimately controlled by the Salomon family, uh, which unfashionably has two share classes, tickers HAN and HANA. This trust has a combined market cap of around $220 million, reported NAV total return of minus 3.1% for the year to March. It too says that following a strategy review, it plans to invest up to 10% in illiquid private assets, uh, principally private equity. However, characteristically, perhaps you might think out of tune with prevailing trends, the board says it believes that a share buyback policy would not have any significant impact on the discount, which is currently somewhere between 38 and 41% for the two share classes, and it won't therefore be adopting one. JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets, ticker JARA, reported an NAV total return of 11.6% in sterling times for its latest 12-month period but that reduced to plus 3.9% in local currency terms. In other words, the bulk of the return was achieved as a result of sterling weakness over the 12 months in its uh, latest reporting period. That's because its shares are reported in dollars. It does not have a sterling share class. The manager said he has rebalanced the portfolio, having seen positive returns from transport, real estate in Asia-Pacific and global infrastructure, but suffered from a decline in the valuation of listed real estate holdings. While its NAV performance has been relatively steady in underlying terms, has been volatile in share price terms since its launch in 2019, primarily due to this unhedged exposure to the dollar sterling exchange rate. It currently trades on a 16% discount, well down over the course of this year. JP Morgan Japan, small cap growth and income, ticker JSGI, market cap around 169 million reported an NAV total return of minus 5.7%, somewhat less than its benchmark, which actually achieved a positive return of 5% over its latest reporting period. The trust said that its performance had been affected by its bias towards quality and growth, both of which fell out of favour during this particular period. Value and index property, ticker VIP, an interesting vehicle which used to have a mix of property holdings and equity investments, 
but uh, recently adopted a strategic change and has sold its equity portfolio and is now a pure property investment company. That reported a NAV total return of minus 17.9% in keeping with the general poor performance of property as an asset class in the most uh, recent six months. However, the trust has increased its dividend up by 2.4%, and this is the 36th consecutive year that it has announced an increased dividend. The dividend was uncovered for the latest period, but the trust said it's now fully covered by contracted income, and it's reported that it has achieved 100% rent collection. There will be a proposal to put forward to shareholders to offer them an exit in 2026 at NAV minus costs. And finally, Chelverton UK Dividend Trust, ticker SDV, a relatively small trust, market cap of around £35 million, reported NAV total return of minus 8.2% to the end of April. Its performance would have been even worse had it not been for the fact that it had received six bids for portfolio companies in its UK portfolio. It is, however, increasing the dividend again by 7% to 11.77p and intends to increase its dividends by 7% per annum from here on and use any surplus, it says, to replenish its revenue reserves, uh, some of which have been used up over the last two years. Our regular summary of the other announcements this week, including interim results from Aberdeen China, BlackRock Sustainable American Income, Harmony Energy Income Trust, Schroeder UK Midcap, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, and Sequoia Economic Infrastructure, can be found on our website together with the latest most notable share price NAV and discount movements over the past week and year to date. Subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle will also be able to read a profile this week of AVI Japan Opportunity Trust, ticker AJOT, the Japanese Small Cap Investment Trust, whose shares are up around 13% over the past 12 months. And our archive of past content now includes profiles of more than 50 of the largest and most interesting trusts in the UK market. They are available for anyone who subscribes to the Moneymaker Circle. My regular look back at the year to date will also be posted there in a few days' time. As we've reached the halfway point of the year, when we're recording this, June the 30th, it's obviously seemed a good moment to catch up with Peter Hewitt, who is manager of the CT Global Managed Portfolios, the two share classes. There's an income share class and there's a growth share class and invest only in other investment trusts. So perfect person to talk to to review what's happened so far this year. To be fair, Peter, I think since we last spoke, the investment trust sector has remained under a cloud. I think it's fair to say that. Discounts have widened a little bit further, currently just over 17% on average across the closed-end fund index. And the UK market is flat, and only the US market and Japan have been making the running really this year. So looking back on the first six months, first of all, Peter, before we look at what you've been doing, um, what's your impression of how this uh, six months has gone? Well, Jonathan, great to be back on the podcast. And certainly the first half of 2023 has been challenging, I think, for most fund managers. You know, when you have rising inflation and interest rates going up everywhere, it's going to pose problems for financial markets, equity markets, and I think it has done. I mean, in some respects, you could say, well, actually, equities have been reasonably resilient because UK, European markets, it's not that they're down a lot, but I think they've generally been held up by some larger companies in various indices, again, in Europe, UK, actually also in America, which I'll come on to in a minute. If you'd actually looked at how 
the vast majority by number of companies, mid caps, small caps, most of them probably have fallen a bit in price. And given the macro outlook that everybody knows we're going through just now, that's probably not a surprise. The shining star has been America, and the S&P is up, I think it's 13 or 14% in the first half. The NASDAQ index is up somewhere between 25 and 30%. But actually, it's just been the megatech names that we all know and love that have rallied very strongly. Microsoft, Alphabet, Apple, Meta, etc. And a lot of that has been on the back of this artificial intelligence story, which came through very strongly in the first half. If you actually exclude the top 10 companies in the S&P 500, and all of them are technology companies, the US market, the other 490 was up one. (laughs) So actually not that different from most of the other markets, but such has been the magnitude of the gains of some of these tech names that actually could go on for a while yet the US market has led the way. Another one as you mentioned has been Japan and Japan has been benefiting from its very loose monetary policy. Rates haven't gone up there. It's not that growth has been that strong but certainly a lot of improved corporate governance I think has attracted foreigners to Japanese market. Having said that the yen has weakened massively And I didn't think I'd ever live to say the day that sterling appreciated 15% against the yen in the first half of this year, but it did. And so your gains in the Tokyo market have been diluted significantly. But even saying all of that, you've had kind of one or two months, you think, oh, we're through all this and things look like we're on the front foot. And then suddenly you maybe get some bad news, macro news, it might be inflation, unemployment, whatever, and suddenly things reverse. It's been two steps forward and then two or two and a half steps back. One of the interesting features of the first six months, or indeed the last nine months really, I think, and I know you're in a couple of these, is this has caught out some very, very smart, very, very experienced investors, and not least those who are trying to manage absolute return or or what we call defensive investment trusts, so the likes of Ruffer and Capital Gearing, both run by incredibly experienced and clever people. They've actually been taken for a bit of a ride as well in the first six months. They're down more than they would be comfortable with. A good example of how the markets can make fools of all of us in the end by confounding the greatest uh, intellects in the market. They can be wrong in the short term, at least, just as much as anybody else. There's no doubt about that. And it's just not been that predictable. And I think it's, uh, yes, I'm sure I own capital gearing and rougher. And it's not that they've done badly, but you'd have hoped in tricky, challenging conditions, they may have been able to hold the line a little better than they had. Over the longer run, they have more than met their objectives. But we're just focusing on the last few months, the first half of this year. So then the Brevin Howard Macro Fund, which I've got, had a fantastic 2022, best performing investment trust I owned. And it's certainly not got that in the first half of this year. It's been wrong-footed by... I think some central bank pronouncements, the banking crisis in the US. So for a while, instead of yields going up, they fell in America. And I think that caught out BH Macro, which has had a difficult time. And also, and this is a constant lesson to us all, when investment trusts sell at premiums that can sometimes just get a bit extended, 
Almost always it ends in tears. And even a slight fall in an NAV can be a much bigger fall in the share price as the trust goes from a five premium to a five discount, for example. Yes, that's true. In the BH Macro case, I mean, they went to 10 or even 15% premium. They mm. quite smartly issued quite a lot of shares to raise more money. And since then, it's been, uh, again, downhill all the way so far, which is a reminder, as you say, you want to be wary when these things get certainly double digit uh, premiums. That's rarely a good time. You should normally be trimming a few, I think, is the expression we use. You would agree with that, would you, Peter? Well, I would. I mean, it's difficult in the case of, I mean, just take Brett Brevin Aaron. You know, let's say it gets to a 10% premium and you really think, given what it invests in, that's most of next year's performance. And then if you decide to sell it all, you may well be correct in the short term, but you've got to be extremely nimble to remember that actually some of the fundamental reasons why you own that thing, which is in difficult markets, it performs really quite well most of the time. And then the difficult market comes and you're not in Revenhour Macro. So sometimes you just try and sit it out and hope it gently corrects itself. Other times it can happen quite quickly. So that's tricky. And that's why I think you've got to monitor your investment trust holdings quite closely. And sometimes some of them do get a bit extended. And that can offer an opportunity either to sell or actually maybe more now that we should be talking about is actually edging into some trusts which are on extremely attractive discounts. Yes, I was going to come on to that. First of all, there aren't many trusts trading at a premium, where this is certainly not the case where you're, you're worried about the fact the premiums might be too high. And there's a lot of trusts which have gone to very, very wide discounts, particularly in the alternative asset sector. I mean, that's really been the story, I think, why the uh, overall discount on the investment trust sector has fallen as far as it has, is because a lot of alternative asset trusts have, as we know, gone from either trading around par or, or at a premium to trading at quite big discounts, discounts we haven't seen in many cases for a long, long time. And now you, you run a, an income share class, obviously, for those investors in your trust who want income. Do you think it's been overdone? Some of the brokers have been coming out recently saying, we think this sell-off in the infrastructure renewables in particular is overdone. Do you agree with that? Do you think that makes sense? I think it probably has been. And I mean, I've not got many, but I have taken a few hits to the head and body <laughs> in the last month or so. And what happened really, I think, was... The surprise, quite large increase in interest rates from the Bank of England, merited in my view, but nonetheless, you know, rates going up 50 basis points. And I think investors in the market looking ahead thinking, well, the peak now is going to be higher than I thought, maybe six, maybe six and a half. And at that sort of level, it probably does really start constraining growth and pushes it into recession. But in terms of alternatives, it then feeds through into how they value their assets, which are often valued by a discount rate, which itself gets guided by what's happening with gilt yields, bond yields, and interest rates. And so if they're rising, and I mean, this year so far, the 10-year gilt has gone from something like 3.6 to 4.4%, which doesn't sound a lot, but actually it is quite a lot much more so than happened in America. In the US, it's stayed roughly about 3.6, 3.7 for the whole of the first half. So that tells you about how the market's viewing our inflation problem. But it feeds through to alternatives onto this discount rate, and which reduces asset values. And I think probably markets have moved too far too fast. 
and forgotten some of the other characteristics of some of these funds. But they did sell at premiums or roundabout asset value for long enough. And now most of your renewables probably will be on discounts of 10, 12%, which I have to say, for example, I own Greencoat UK Wind, which is the biggest, it's 3 billion market value. And that share price went from, I think, 160, 165 roundabout asset value. And it got down to 135. I think it's in the 140s as we speak. And that really was quite a big move. But you shouldn't forget, they're increasing the dividend at RPI. In other words, 13.5% is what the dividend is going to rise this year. And it's yielding well over five. Probably now the yield is between six and six and a half. And that's pretty attractive. So I think it probably has been overdone. I've heard that for a number of brokers as well and market makers. They just say it's not so much that there's a lot of selling going on. It's just there's just nobody out there wants to buy at the moment. But of course, if that suddenly changes and you suddenly start to get a big move in these things, they might come back. And who's to say they'd be wrong? I mean, as you say, some of them look particularly attractive even against a background of rising bond yields against which they're often measured. What about commercial property? I mean, that also has taken a big hit, and it just gets worse and worse, or seems to. It does. Back and in the I end of must... last year, we heard people saying, oh, well, we've had a big hit, but it's sort of over. But no, it's been down here all the way from here as well for commercial property trusts. What's been your experience? You don't have a particularly big holdings, I don't think, but you got bailed mm. out in the case of Civitas, yes. social housing, which had a bid. But uh, a rather strange bid at ATP, which the NAV is yes. over a pound. What did you make of all that? Well, yes. I mean, I think in the fools of time, the acquirers have probably got themselves a bargain. I mean, just so listeners know, Civitas involved in social housing, owning properties, quite different from home REIT, it should be said. These are people who need quite a lot of support. It's not just ordinary council houses, you know, far from it. But nonetheless, they've had their problems over the time. Although they've never missed a beat in terms of the dividend. It's always been paid and increased every year since IPO. So the NAV is about 109, and the shares got down to just over 50p, which is a massive discount. And then this bid comes in from a Hong Kong property company, 80 pence in cash. So it's a big uplift on the 50 or 60p the shares were trading at but still 27% below the last reported asset value, which, by the way, was down 1%, not down massively at all. That was for the year to end March. So, you know, I didn't actually accept the bid, but it's gone unconditional. So I just felt it was worth more than that. Uh, but nonetheless, it was helpful for performance. Of course. But it was odd, wasn't it? I mean, the directors actually kind of recommended the bid, even though they hadn't made any attempt to say that the NAV was overstated. I can't remember an example really like that in recent past. Can you? No, I can't. I must say that was surprising. I mean, I understand they'd have a difficult time. And, um, you know, the share price was telling you that. But actually... The underlying business was not nearly as bad as was being made out. And um, I think a proper price for it probably was somewhere between 80p and a pound. Maybe not up to asset value. It used to sell at a premium, believe it or not. But I think what went on with home REIT, because it was vaguely in the same area, that really did put the mockers on things. And I think the board probably decided, well, we'll just take a bird in the hand here. But I was slightly disappointed, I must be honest, yep. 
their argument was that they didn't see any realistic prospect of the discount coming in far enough to get back to NAV, given all the noise around the sector, I guess, and uh, the problems at home, which is very different business model, etc., and the regulatory issues. So tell us what you've been doing, Peter, in your portfolios. You've got these two portfolios, income and growth. What kind of changes have you been making over the course of, say, the last three months? I have been continuing, which I started actually last year, just gently and steadily, but I continued it in the last quarter of adding to some UK equity trusts. So in the growth portfolio, I've added to Aberforth, I've added to James Henderson's Lowland, I'm a big supporter. In the income portfolio, I added some to Merchants, Invesco, Perpetual UK Small Companies, and Mercantile. Mercantile on a 16 discount. I mean, I had another meeting with the managers from Aberforth, and you may recall, I think when I was last on, I said I saw them in February, and their portfolio, they're a, a UK small cap manager with a value style. So it's been difficult for them the last sort of decade, to be honest, although it's beginning to come their way now. And the portfolio then had an approximate PE of about eight, and that was in February. Well, when I saw the managers again at the end of May, that had trended towards seven. <laughs> so you just think to yourself, it's no guide to short-term performance, but buying Aberforth on a 14 discount, a 3% dividend yield, and the portfolio valued like that, and almost half the companies they own are in net cash. So it's not like they're hopelessly over-leveraged and they're, they're horrible quality companies they own. It's just that UK small caps are incredibly out of favour. I don't think that's going to turn round next week, next month, this quarter. But I think if you genuinely take a medium to long term view, buying something like that, and Lowland is similar, it's got quite a lot of mid and small caps. And when I last saw James, I think the portfolio was valued on a P of about nine or 10, very modest indeed. These, I think, will prove to be good investments, perhaps really good investments in the fullness of time. But they haven't been <laughs> in the last couple of months. And I mean, I'm just looking at UK equity performance. I mean, Lowland is a case in point. The discount is now into double digits and it was in mid single digits not that long ago. Fidelity Special Values, another one that's a big holding for mine. It's my third biggest holding. Discount's gone from five to over 10 today. And the performance has really not been bad at all. So it just shows you what we're seeing. Sentiment, again, particularly to UK equity trusts, along with alternatives, has not been good. So, you know, I've been adding there where I can. And the other thing, Jonathan, and you'll like this, because we've been speaking for a while now, and you may recall 18 months ago, having had a fantastic 2019 and 2020, and my growth portfolio was full of, let's say, technology-orientated names, lots of Bailey Gifford trusts and things like that, which had performed incredibly well. Interest rates then started turning at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. I took a big axe to a third to half out of a lot of holdings, a lot of holdings. So in May, I edged back into Allianz Technology Trust and PolarCap Technology Trust. Not all of them, all of them being anything with a sort of secular growth bias, specifically to those two, 
and specifically because in both cases, roughly 40% of the portfolio is invested in these big megatech names that have been rallying quite strongly. Both of them, interesting, have got 6% holdings in NVIDIA, and they've performed really quite well. In fact, the year end for the investment trust I run is the end of May. It's a rather unusual year end. So it encapsulates a not great last 12 months. And the best two performers over that period were those two trusts. And it was all the final two or three months, March, April, May, as this artificial intelligence boom seemed to catch the imagination. I suspect it's actually a bit more than just a fad. I think there is some genuine interest there, and it will make a difference to quite a number of companies. So I've edged back in there, and both of those technology trusts are now in my top 10 in the growth portfolio. So quite a few things you've done there, and all of which seem to make a lot of sense. But as you repeatedly said when we do talk, this is a medium long-term game. All you can do as an investment trust shareholder or investment trust investor is to look at the values, look at the big picture, and then take a deep breath and try and buy the things when nobody else wants them. It's the oldest story in the game. And more often than not, you will be rewarded, but it may not come straight away. You've just got to be patient, have you not? Well, it's interesting. These technology trusts, the discounts are still 12 13 14%. And they're actually buying in shares. So although they've performed well, it's all been asset performance. It's not been closing of discounts. And I think they could have a bit further to go. The one UK trust I've also, it's not my second biggest holding, and it has done really quite well relatively in the last six months to a year, has been Finsbury Growth and Income, Nick Train's trust. I mean, it's not a value trust at all. It's quality growth companies, steady growth companies, Diageo, Unilever, Relics, London Stock Exchange, Heineken. But the one thing it does have, and a lot of these companies are really quite resilient when there's high inflation. In other words, they can pass inflation on to their final customers. And that showed through in the results of some of the underlying companies. And it's done quite well, having had a not very good sort of 2021. Um, But even Finsbury Growth and Income, which always used to sell at par or a small premium, you can get it on a five or six discount now. Yeah. And also I noticed about six months ago that Nick Train himself bought a whole bunch of shares in the trust as well, which he already got quite a big holding and lots of holdings elsewhere. But even so, that's a sort of indicator one can also watch. Managers actually eating their own cooking, so to speak, often quite an encouraging sign. Well, what are we expecting then, Peter, over the next six months? We had a pretty rough time almost since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Then it all started to go wrong for the investment trust sector. We could be near the bottom, you think, of this uh, cyclical thing. That's the implication of what we've been saying. But none of us can predict the timing. And the sentiment about the UK in particular is so bad that you have to think that for those of us who have been around a long time and have grey hair to prove it, it's very hard to find anything positive to say about the UK. But uh, this might be just the kind of environment in which you want to be putting some money into the UK investment trusts. Yes, I think you have to be very clear about your expectations The UK, if anything, might get worse over the summer before, by the UK, I mean the equity market. But I think you're now getting some really extreme valuations. And even if we hit a recession next year, that's more than priced in. Remember what I said about the Aberforth portfolio. 
So my feeling is that investment companies themselves are at discounts, and I reeled off a few UK trusts, Mercantile 16, Aberforth 14, Fidelity Special Values 10 or 11. And these are trusts which are well run. And if you take a maybe two or three year view, I'm not talking about 10 or 20 years, I think you probably find you make quite a lot of money. And so the one thing about buying value trusts is you've got to try and look for what, so what's the catalyst to change this sentiment that you were mentioning, Jonathan, which is really quite negative in the UK just now because we feel interest rates are going to go endlessly up and, oh dear, that's not good for financial markets. But they will eventually hit a peak. And I think it probably doesn't even need for them to start to be reduced. I think it's just for markets to get a feeling that, right, well, that's it. I don't think we're going to get much more in the way of interest rate increases. And that's the first step. And I think the one thing we've all got wrong, really, since the last 12, 15 months, is how resilient economies have been. And I'm not thinking there's going to be a really deep, nasty recession. I think there will be a slowdown. We may well dip into negative territory later this year or early next. But employment levels are so buoyant that it just doesn't feel like we're going to get a really nasty recession. And what that probably means is rates are going to be higher for longer. So I'm not saying this is an immediate story, but for your listeners, it's something to consider in the next few weeks and months. I think are certain UK trusts offering quite attractive discounts with undervalued portfolios. And there's still some really good companies in the UK, growth companies as well. And you could do really quite well on a medium-term view. So on that note, uh, I think that was a good moment to bring this discussion to an end. Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Stimulating as always. Very much look forward for your results coming out and uh, also to having you back on the podcast in two or three months' time where we can see how the third quarter goes and whether we're going to see some signs of the kind of pickup that we're all hoping to see. I couldn't think of a better person to talk to this week about where we are with the UK equity market than James Henderson, who is the manager of three investment trusts. But for the purpose of this podcast, we're going to concentrate mainly on the Lowland Investment Trust, which is a equity investment trust, invests only in the UK market and has the FTSE All Share as its benchmark. Now, the reason I mention this is because, James, you have been active in managing UK equity portfolios since at least, I think, the 1980s. But in the case of Lowland, you've been at the helm since January 1990, which is, if I may say so, one hell of a stint. Puts you in a very good position to contrast and compare where we are in the UK market, which, as everybody has noted, is uh, looking very cheap, very unloved, and all the rest of it. How does that uh, compare with other episodes in this uh, long period that you've been managing uh, UK equity uh, funds? I'd go back further than 1990, perhaps. Before I was managing money, I was at university in the late 70s, early 80s. And when Mrs. Thatcher came to power, shortly after she came to power, 365 eminent economists all wrote in the Times um, that the UK was going to be bust within six months if she didn't reverse her policies. The policies they were particularly thinking about were VAT and things, which she had hiked up. And we were heading for recession then. And these these eminent economists, and they're all the big economists other than one guy at Liverpool, Minford, signed this letter. And they were all completely wrong because the country didn't go bust. And actually, for most of the 80s, it was a very good 
period of reasonable growth. So all the time that I've followed the economy, we've always had these periods when the UK is rubbished and we're always told it's it's about to fall off a cliff. And it doesn't. Why? Because there's lots of creative good things happening in the UK that we're inclined to forget about at various times. At the moment, it does feel as lonely as it's ever felt doing UK smaller companies. It's partly because of the success of the big American companies. It's dragging money out of everything. And UK companies with this belief that the UK economy is in a bad way has come together to make it pretty miserable in UK companies. But uh, it'll pass. It always does. Indeed, it does. In the long run, of course, we're all dead, but it does pass. Let's just talk about some of the factors that are behind perhaps the unloved nature of the UK market. What do you think are the main ones? I mean, we know that, for example, there are some structural things that have been going on. The uh, pension funds don't invest so much in UK equities anymore, uh, UK pension funds, that is. And on the world stage, we've fallen to a very small portion of the world index. So it's not so, so obviously on the radar of a lot of international investors. But what else is going on? Are those the primary factors or is it sentiment as well? What's the story here, do you think, Joe? Yes, I mean, perhaps some less well-known problems that we as investment managers are having to live with on the small company front, are more technical in their nature. So the demise of Neil Woodford's funds meant there was a real emphasis in um, investment houses on liquidity. It was lack of liquidity that, in the end, caused the problem there. And people are trying to learn from that. So business managers, investment houses, have been raising the bar on liquidity, i.e. they don't want to be left with illiquid portfolios when a manager moves on. So this focus on liquidity is self-fueling because more and more companies are considered illiquid, and therefore there are warnings about investing in them. This has come at a time, as you say, the UK has fallen out of favour by the asset allocator. There are the economic problems associated with COVID, Brexit, and higher interest rates. That storm is real, but less real is this obsession with liquidity that is now happening with many investment managers. So a lot of investment managers are saying, I'm not going to look at a company below X million. And the X comes 3x, 4x. And that has meant that there's less of people looking at smaller companies at a time that there are all these problems around them. That is part of the reason for the derating. But the derating is now massive. And in the end, people like me think markets are efficient and work. And we get over these technical problems when the story is good enough. Right. So what would it take for the story to become good enough, do you think? what's the, Is there a catalyst or will it just be the fact that it gets so uh, oversold that... Uh, even the most uh, reluctant investor says this has got to be cheap at this price. I think going back in history, the catalyst usually is, is interest rates falling or stopping going up and the perceived view is the next move is going to be falling. And then often at that point in the cycle, companies are having profits warnings because the high interest rates have impacted them. And there's that wonderful moment when on a downgrade, people are relieved that the downgrade's only that and the price goes up. And at the moment, we're still away from that because on a downgrade, prices are still falling. So, for instance, in 1992-3, when we left the ERM and Norman Lamont was singing in his bath the day we left the ERM because interest rates had kept going up as we tried to defend staying in the ERM. 
and um, had a really adverse effect on the market. They put it rates, I think, up to 17% during the day to try and um, stay in the RM. And then the market started to go up. And I still remember coming to my desk that afternoon and rates had gone up to 17%. I had my head in my hands thinking, this is the end. How is any company going to cope with it? It's got some death and rates at 17. And the market started going up. The market knew that 17 wasn't sustainable and that we weren't going to stay on the RM. And that's why Norman Lamont was singing in his bath that night, because rates fell to single percentage quite quickly. And the market was very, very strong, particularly in domestic earners and smaller companies in that period. You had to take a lot of pain in front of it. You know, trying to stay in the RM was very, very painful for many businesses. And it was also painful for investors in the UK companies. But 93, 4, 5 was a very good time to be invested in domestic UK. And it was interest rates. It was interest rate falling, no longer realising they could go up any further than falling. And you had a lot of profits warnings, but the prices kept going up. You had capital raises and they were oversubscribed a long way from what we're experiencing at the moment. Because I think it's because the market hasn't got a feel yet for how high rates will need to go. So at the moment, the Bank of England is still making very hawkish noises, as indeed they have to. They seem to have missed the inflation surge that we've seen unfortunately. So we don't yet know when that's going to peak. Do you have any idea yourself, any sort of, or any wishes perhaps at what level they might stop uh, <laughs> raising a base rate? Some people saying it's sort of 6% they could get up to. Do you think that's uh, either likely or would that be even worse? Well, I hope you're right. You know, uh, what you said earlier, that they were wrong. They were too slow to raise rates. I hope they're going to be behind the curve on the way down. And uh, there are a lot of prices that are falling. There's a lot of academic work that shows actual inflation numbers are very much a laggard of what's actually happening in the economy. And I think that's what we're witnessing at the moment. I've no idea why they focus on an inflation number when they know it's a laggard number to the actual activity. And there are plenty of prices that are already falling, not just energy prices. There are things like barley prices. I know I follow barley prices closely. They've fallen a long way. And this will feed through to um, food prices. After all, your corn price is what feeds your chicken. Your chicken has gone up a lot, but they will be lower. These prices will be lower in a few months' time. I'm not quite sure why they take food out of the number, because actually it is food that hits people in the pocket very quickly. And energy, and energy prices also will be coming back. And the base effect of the energy prices coming back means that from the autumn onwards, the inflation number will be considerably lower. So the inflation number does fall. And the current obsession with moving rates up may look as though the bank was just as wrong as when it didn't raise rates quick enough, when um, there were such obvious inflationary pressures around when we came out of the COVID period. They could overdo it, in other words, and that will be the point when people realise perhaps that uh, interest rates are going to come down and then you're saying they'll revisit their assumptions about the equity market. But we're not there yet. In terms of valuations, though, we're getting close to kind of all-time lows, I think. I mean, the kind of PE we're seeing on the kind of stocks that you invest, in other words, not the FTSE 100, but the all-share index, I think it's down to somewhere around eight times or something, isn't it, on average? And we got as low as, I think, six at the very bottom of the 2008 crisis, but it wasn't much worse than this during the brief COVID sell-off. So you would say that there isn't much further to go in terms of derating. No, I mean, another valuation tool perhaps look at is is sales to market cap. 
therefore you get a feel for the size of a business when you look at its sales number when you look at sales to market cap i've never seen prices so low as they are today and it's a nice one that it's a very clean one you know a sales number is a sales number and a market cap number is the market cap number so when that's low you know you can take some comfort that valuations are at historically very interesting levels yes You've always historically in Lowland, as well as in your other investment trusts like Henderson Opportunities, you have always focused on the small and mid-cap sectors, even though in the case of Lowland, your benchmark is the all-share index. Do you think that that has cost you a bit of performance over time, that uh, bias towards small and mid-cap, in the short term at least? Oh, definitely in the short term, absolutely. And that's always been the case. There have always been periods when a small cap is out of favour. AIM is particularly out of favour at the moment. But over time, over the long term, the reason that the returns are good is that um, small cap has substantially outperformed. A good small company is a better investment than a good big company because it's got much more scope to grow. But you feel it's quite difficult saying that at the moment. But you don't try to time the transition from one to the other. So in other words, you, I think you always had one. You're stuck with your small and mid-cap buyers in the portfolio. There's no question of trying to shift in and out to catch these movements in relative I try, You know, It's high for me, the rating in FTSE, for instance, in Lowland. I'm wanting to get it down, the FTSE 100 rating, towards more small and mid-cap. But you need to do it gently. Yes, I agree. I don't know what the timing is. But that's the direction of travel to reduce the FTSE rating. Hopefully, the FTSE just takes out some of the volatility that you get with small cap investing. But the small cap, for me, will be the differentiator. It's what you do differently that makes you perform differently. So when, when I'm going to be bold enough to say, when we get the turnaround in the UK equity market, particularly the domestic market, what will happen there? What tends to happen? Will we get a dash for trash, do you think, where a lot of low-quality companies suddenly come bouncing back in a big way for a short period? And if so, is that part of your style to try and capture that? Or will you be sticking to a kind of longer-term criteria for picking the stocks when we get there? Well, the trash is a little bit unfair. I mean, these are great companies, but they might be in difficult industries. You know, you can still have very good managements and very good companies, even if the overall growth of that industry is cyclical in its pattern. And sometimes when people say there's a dash for trash, they're saying they don't like cyclicals or they're being rude about cyclicals. I think some of the best companies are cyclical companies. I mean, the best management teams is very hard work working in a cyclical industry. You have to be a manager that that can deal with the wind in your face. So no, definitely um, there'll be a cyclical bias on falling interest rates across everything I run. There is already, but we might increase it further as the cycle develops, the stand swing develops. You know, We want to buy more cyclicality. So does that mean you're already positioning yourself for that kind of rally? I've done it, yeah. I've been doing it for a while, far too early. But no, we'll keep going like that. I have noticed you've been buying some interesting things. I mean, goodness me, you've been buying a house builders and you've been buying uh, Marshalls, which is a very good company, but is in the construction business and so on. So these are the kind of things that you're you're looking at at the moment, are they? What other things have you been uh, adding to the portfolio recently? And engineers. I think there are many financials that on historic valuations look cheap. So this has been a derating across most sectors, and that's quite interesting. Usually in bear markets, everything suffers in the end. The last man standing is your sort of quality thing, and then even that starts to come off. 
and that's a sign that you're getting towards the end of it. And I take quite a bit of comfort that there are very few areas that when I look at don't look cheap to me. That suggests a maturing of the bear market and means that you should be upping your gearing because you're somewhere towards the end of it. So how would you describe your style as a fund manager? You're kind of adapting to the cycle, obviously. But how would you describe your fundamental philosophy? This is contrarian, hopefully not being contrarian for the sake of being difficult and contrarian, but hopefully being contrarian because markets over-exaggerate. Things aren't usually never as good as you're told and they're never as bad as you're told. And markets are emotional and they take things up too far when they get overexcited. And then at times like now, they take things down too far as they fret and worry and their degree of loathing of of things is too extreme so therefore being a contrarian you are increasing in these difficult times and you are hopefully letting stuff go into the good times and you never do enough of both when you look back at the time it feels as though you've done quite a bit can i talk you also about dividends then i mean lowland does pay a reasonable dividend how important is that in the way that you manage the trust obviously lowland's been around for a long time has a long history and uh, uh, is very proud of that. How important is that to compare to, say, your other investment trust? It's definitely important for all of them. I mean, the way of getting sustainable dividend growth is sounds a bit odd, but it's to grow the capital. If you grow the capital in a great pool of assets earning the earning, then your dividend grows. So the focus always is in growing the capital with a dividend overlay, the dividend discipline. Therefore, nothing is bought that's just for because it's high yield. It's bought because it's going to grow and the dividend will fall out from there. So we're buying things, some of them at zero yielding, because I believe they're going to come onto the dividend list and therefore enhance the earnings further out. And as you're right, the object will therefore be to keep, as it has in the past, the dividend growing. And I think at the moment, I mean, the yield on Lola is over 5%. How does that compare to past patterns? In other words, is that an indicator also of where we are in the cycle? Yes. I mean, it's a good discipline, dividends like that. It's a good buy discipline when yields get high and it's a good sell discipline when yields get low. And it's definitely at the very high end at the moment. It usually points you in the right direction. In individual stocks in recent years, it hasn't been a good discipline. That's because of the change going on, because of the slowness in the economy, and more recently because of rates going up. But over time, it has been a good valuation metric, dividend yield. Can I also ask you, uh, Jase, about the AIM market, which is great interest. That was a huge success for many, many years and comfortably outperformed even small cap, I think. But it has a really had big sell-off, and that hasn't really come to an end yet. What do you think the factors are behind that, and what do you think that would take to change that? Is that partly to do with regulation and so on, or are there other factors there? Is it just the type of companies you find there? I think AIM over 25 years as an index probably hasn't made people any money at all. But within that, there are obviously some real successes in there. I think if you're a UK manager, you should be looking at AIM because the smaller company sector of the main markets become very small. There are lots of investment trusts and things like that on it. If you exclude those, there aren't that many companies because the next generation of really good growth companies in the UK are on AIM. They've gone to AIM. They enjoy the lighter governance. They might have some tax breaks from it. And there is an audience for them on AIM that they don't get on the main market. So all the next generation of good small companies, I think, are on AIM. Therefore, as a manager, you want to be looking at AIM. 
and there will out merge out of AIM the successful businesses of tomorrow. A lot of dross is on AIM too. And the trouble is when it's easy to raise cash for a company, the printing presses print a lot of share certificates on AIM and that then comes back in and, and drags the index down. So the index doesn't really reflect what's happening. There are some great success stories on AIM over the years and we need to just keep our heads down and and look for companies knowing there will be problems with some but it's not symmetrical for everyone that's a problem there's companies that go up five six seven eight nine ten times and that means that balance you know you need to run quite a relatively long list of companies on aim because of that and be aware that there will be failures amongst those companies I think it's true to say, though, is it not, that there was a period when if you were listed on AIM for any given kind of characteristics, you were more highly rated than if you're on the main market, which may have something to do with the way that uh, wealth managers manage their portfolios and so on, and uh, IHT portfolios and things like that. But do you think we'll get back to that state of affairs? No, I don't think we get back to it, because if anything, those tax breaks could go if we had a change of government, for instance. And I think it's wrong. I think you know it shouldn't work like that. That said, I think a lightness of touch on governance cuts both ways. It puts certain investors off. But for companies to be fast and flexible, that's good. And that for the next generation of dynamic management will probably emerge out of AIM rather than the main market because of the flexibility, the speed and access to capital that it brings. But none of that's there at the moment. It's it's problematic aim at the moment because of the liquidity issues. The lack of success of recent years has meant people aren't allocating capital to the area at the moment, but that will change. Finally, can I ask you about, about Lowland specifically in this case, but uh, it perhaps has more general application. You have the distinction, for better or worse, that Lowland at the moment, I think, in your sector, the UK equity income sector is trading on the widest discount of any trust there. And it's quite wide by your own historical experience. Is that something that concerns you? Or would you make the point that actually when we do see this rally, you'll potentially get a double whammy as the discount comes in a little bit? Is it mainly gearing? How do you attribute that? I think just we need to work harder. We need to talk to you more often and get the story out there. You know, as I said, I've run it since 1990 and I've had it at a double-digit high teen discount and at an 8-9 premium. And what you have to do is keep talking, keep explaining, keep being open about it, and the market will be what the market is. And of course, I hope that people get a double whammy of asset price going up and the share price discount getting blown away. That'd be lovely. And that does happen sometimes, but who knows when that comes. But it's wrong to say I don't look at the discount, but I do know they come and go. I've been on premiums where I don't deserve to be on on big discounts when things underlying are fine. So I don't overly worry about it. And good luck to the people that buy it on the discounts. So you wouldn't ever want to operate with a discount control policy or discount control mechanism? No. Well, that's a board decision, not mine. Why I don't like it is because on AIM, you come back to this liquidity issue that everyone's obsessed with. The great thing about the closed-end structure is I can buy these AIM stocks or these smaller company recovery stocks, not looking over my shoulder that I'm going to have to produce in cash but to fund a buyback. And if we can make that count, that privilege, we will make sure that the closed-end funds outperform the open-ended funds substantially. Yes, we have to have arguments about different and discount control policies every so often with people. But if we state that and then try and make sure we make it work, then um, I think they're justified not having a different and discount policy. That was James Henderson, the manager of the Lowland Investment Trust, who's been 
managing UK equities as we've been discussing for a long time and is well placed to uh, give us a, a longer term perspective on where we are in the market cycle, which as we know at the moment, UK market is pretty unloved, but let's hope that the turnaround comes sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.